Thanks, Tim. And while you're finding page 288, I'll just explain that I'm going to read this chapter in two parts. So the first part will be verses 1 to 37. Then we'll have a song, and then I'll continue. So this is the first book of Samuel, and chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokol in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamim between Sokol and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you not come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three eldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Aminadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath 
the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. When what David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, 
But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down into the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the, sorry, without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewed along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Philistines returned from chasing the Philistine, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Thanks be to God. Thank you all very much. That's uh, that's a very long reading, isn't it? And uh, I guess for many of us a very well-known story. So let's pray and ask that God would help us to to rightly understand what he's saying here. Father, we we pray this morning that you would... Um, I guess especially if we know this story well, uh, that you would uh, help us to understand it rightly and please help us to apply these words to our lives day by day for Jesus' sake. Amen. So it's page 288 in our church Bibles, 288, 289 and 290. And I've got a question. What do you think is the most powerful thing that's ever happened in this world? What's the most powerful thing that's ever happened in this world? Um, some people, maybe, they would, um, 
There we are. That's what we're thinking of. And uh, some people would say the most powerful thing that's ever happened in this world is actually the meteor strike, which uh, many people think may have led to the end of the dinosaurs. Or maybe the most powerful thing that's ever happened happened in 1883 on August the 26th when the, uh, the eruption of Krakatoa happened. The whole island, pretty much the whole island, just exploded. Just extraordinary. And uh, 70% of it was destroyed. Some people say the most uh, powerful thing that's ever happened was Hiroshima. Other people would say, well, that doesn't have to be a physical thing. It could be the influence that we've had on other people. So some would say perhaps it was Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech on August the 28th, 1963. Others would say, well, perhaps on that emotional front, maybe one of the most powerful things, if not the most powerful thing that's ever happened in the world, was that outpouring of emotion following Diana's death in that Paris underpass and the number of flowers that were laid uh, in Kensington Gardens following on from that. But then other people would say, no, actually, there is still one thing which surpasses all of these on all fronts. There is still one fundamentally thing, and that was the death of a peasant carpenter in a remote corner of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago followed a couple of days later by his resurrection. And there are many people down history, many, many hundreds of thousands and more people down history have said that, that weekend, that death and that resurrection were the most powerful event that this world has ever seen. Now, you may be thinking, what on earth has that got to do with David and Goliath? At, uh, it's interesting, actually, this passage, we, I haven't chosen it specially for this morning. It, it just happens to be the next chapter in the series of 1 Samuel as we're going through it. It's a great story, isn't it? Uh, it's a great Sunday school story. And it's absolutely true, you know. It did actually happen. And it's uh, all about power. And it's all about where true power is to be found. So uh, it may well be when we've read this before and we've perhaps thought or maybe we've heard talks or whatever and, uh, and people are saying, well, David and Goliath, of course, it's all about being courageous uh, in the face of our Goliaths. I want to say it's nothing to do with that. Other people say, well, it's all about helping with our poor self-image. I don't read anything that's got anything to do with that either. Um, I've heard, I've heard uh, uh, sermons which say, well, those five smooth stones, they represent reading your Bible and praying and coming to church. And, uh, and if we do, then we're going to overcome all the Goliaths and all the oppositions in our own Christian lives. I don't think it's got anything to do with that, about that either. It's about power. This is about power. And ultimately, you know, this account is all about Jesus. Because it points us forward to him very, very clearly. But first of all, let me tell you a bit about Goliath. He's big. I mean, he's really big. Uh, the tallest man on record is this guy, Robert Wardlow. And uh, when you get seriously big, then there are, you end up with all sorts of medical issues and so on. And, uh, uh, and he was born in 1918. He died when he was 22, tragically. 
Um, he was 8 foot 11 tall. 8 foot 11. I mean, he looks 8 foot 11, doesn't he, from the picture there. And, uh, uh, you know, Goliath, assuming that, that what we have here in terms of his size is, is specifically and, and accurately so, rather than just, well, he was just huge. And, you know, so we might say, well, he was huge. He was 2 meters tall. And, uh, but assuming this is absolutely accurate, Goliath would have been 7 inches, what's that, 18 centimeters taller than Robert Wardlow. And probably twice as wide. He was absolutely massive. And uh, in the days of 1 Samuel, there had been a race of giants, descendants from the Nephilim. You can read about them in Numbers chapter 13, when they're spying out the promised land. And then when Joshua conquered this promised land, this race of giants relocated to Gaza, as in the Gaza Strip, Palestinians and so on, kind of southwest of, uh, of Israel, down on the Mediterranean coast. And in particular, they settled in two cities, Gath and Ashdod. And Goliath came from Gath. He was a real man from a real place, and he was really huge. So what do we learn here? We, fi- we learn here where real power can be found. And as you go through this uh, rather long chapter, we find that there are a number of places where it's not found. So, for instance, real power uh, is actually not found in position. It's not a major point, but the chapter begins, and there Saul is the king. That's his position. And you look in verse 2 there, and it says, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah. That's about 12 miles west of Bethlehem. So if you've been to the Holy Land, not far away. And they drop their battle line to meet the Philistines. And occasionally, very occasionally in the Old Testament, it happened much more in, uh, in, in another time, uh, uh, similar kind of times, but outside of the Bible. But occasionally, you could have a representative battle. So you have one guy from uh, the army on this side fighting one guy from the army on that side, and they two, just the two men, would come and have a, have a fight, have a battle with each other, uh, and then when they've done that, then if this guy wins, then that side has won the victory. And, uh, uh, and so that's what they're doing here. They had one from the, from the Philistine armies, this rather large character called Goliath. And then they had to choose one man from the Israelites. Now, who would go from the Israelites to fight this absolute giant? I mean, Saul himself was a big man. The Bible says he was head and shoulders above anyone else. He was a very big guy. He was the biggest guy probably in Israel. And he was the king. But look at verse 11 here. On hearing the Philistines' words, when, when uh, Goliath would come out and challenge them to, uh, uh, to, uh, to send out someone to fight him, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. It's not just the Israelites, it's Saul and all the Israelites, okay? Now that's very, I mean, that's, uh, uh, so despite his position, he knew that he was powerless against this, this representative giant called Goliath. The power of position is always limited, isn't it, actually? And even, say, uh, well, Barack Obama's found that during his presidency. The most powerful man in the world. And yet, he consistently hasn't got it all his own way in the Senate and the House, the House of Representatives. He's consistently been, uh, uh, been hampered by people who have opposing views. 
And Saul here, King Saul, he has the position of power, and yet he is powerless in the face of this giant. And then just jumping forward a bit in the story, David turns up. David, who is uh, in chapter 16, he's Saul's uh, music therapist. Saw last week. And in verse 32 here, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servants will go and fight him. Now, if you're in Saul's position, what would you have thought when this, this young lad, and no one, and, and Saul couldn't even remember who he was. I mean, he had been helping Saul in his, uh, in his down times and so on. Um, but he didn't actually know who he was. And he turns up, and then extraordinary, look at verse 33, I find this just extraordinary. Um, Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him, you're only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. So that's saying, actually, there is really serious issue. You're not going to go, you haven't got a clue, you don't stand a chance. Why should we trust ourselves to you? Then David explains, well, I fought lions and I fought bears and so on. And then look at verse 37. Uh, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion, this is David speaking, and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. That's a God moment, isn't it? Why on earth would he say that? It's tremendously risky. Why would he say that unless God were at work here? And we know what happens. He chose those five smooth stones, and with the first one, he fell Goliath. Now, you may think that's unlikely. You may think that's really not going to happen. But let me assure you, it can. Now, you, last year, you've probably heard of the, uh, the tragedy of, uh, should be on this one, Philip Hughes, Australian cricketer. He was felled by uh, a short pitch delivery. He turned his back, hit him on the back of the neck. It, uh, I think it split an artery just below the brain, and he died a few days later, just short of his 26th birthday. That delivery that felled Philip Hughes was going probably 85 miles an hour. Apparently, someone who's good with a slingshot and a stone can propel a stone at about 150 miles an hour. Not quite, but almost twice the speed. So let's not think, oh, that would never happen. Let's not think that at all. And it's not quite clear from the story here, but it seems that the stone got Goliath on the ground and then David killed him with his own sword. That's probably what happened. And then cut his head off. But actually in terms of seriously injuring someone, dead easy with a slingshot and a smooth stone. So uh, where is true power to be found? Well, let's get back to the point. Uh, it's not just in your position, whether that's president or a general or a king or a head teacher or a CEO or whatever. No, true power is found somewhere else. Maybe it's found in strength. Is true power found in strength? Well, Saul, he was perhaps six foot five. And Goliath was huge and strong. And uh, you look at his armour, 126 pounds, that's nine stone. Nine stone of armour. And then the, uh, the spearhead alone was 15 pounds. Just the spearhead. 
And uh, I once put on chainmail at an English heritage, I think it must have been, um, event at a, uh, a castle in Suffolk. That was just the chainmail. I could hardly walk wearing the chainmail. And, uh, uh, and that was just the chainmail. But we're attracted to strength, aren't we? I guess one of the reasons I like rugby is I find it hard to believe how big they are. Now, um, uh, here's Billy. Billy Vunipoli got injured yesterday playing for England. He's just a little bit taller than me and about twice as wide. Okay? He weighs just on 20 stone. If he walked in through the door, he would fill the doorway width-wise. He's absolutely huge. Now, uh, we were at Twickenham for a match a couple of years back, and the entire, Billy, the entire Vunipola family were just down the road. They were in our row, just down there, okay? They were taking three seats each, at least. And uh, so Billy was there, Maku was there, uh, the, their mum was there, and their mum, I can tell you, was just, just as big as her son's. And she's a lay preacher in her church. You would certainly listen to her, wouldn't you? <laughs> Just extraordinary. And um, true power, though, is not to be found in strength. That is one of the key lessons from the whole of 1 Samuel. Way back at the beginning of the book, in uh, chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, it is not by strength that one prevails. That's Hannah. It is not by strength that one prevails. We know that, don't we? Mother Teresa knows that. Not by strength, five foot tall, four foot ten when she died. She uh, shrunk a bit, as we all do in our old age. The Albanian nun who shamed so many of us in her treatment of the poor in Calcutta. So uh, uh, so I want to say, um, first thing here is uh, just don't, don't judge by appearances. 167 uh, is just a timely reminder from last week, isn't it? Uh, the Lord, people look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I quite enjoy uh, recording The Apprentice and then watching it when we have time. And uh, um, Anna doesn't like it. It's normally just me watching it. And, uh, and they all look so smart and confident, don't they? And then half of them are just unbelievably inept. Or maybe it's just the way the show is edited. Perhaps it's that. But there's a little thing here, isn't it? They look great on The Apprentice, but actually, are they any good? And uh, don't ju- for us, let's not judge people by their appearance, whether they're very scruffy or very smart. We need to get to know people. We need to value people. We don't just judge by such shallow things as, well, the shirt they're wearing or they need a haircut or even how big they are. That's just one thing in passing, but much more important is this. Watch the scales. Now, by that, I don't mean the kind of scales that are on the screen there. It's nothing to do with weight. First, note that Goliath was defying God. And there are quite a number of words here uh, in this chapter, in 1 um, Samuel 17, which come from the root harap in the Hebrew. And that means to defy or to mock or to deride. So just for instance, verse, uh, verse 10, the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. I defy the armies of Israel. You've got, uh, it comes again, it's in verse 25. It's there in verse 26, twice. In the original, verse 36, verse 45. Goliath here is defying God and his people. But more than that, 
Why do you think it spends so much time telling about what he looks like and what he's wearing? So look at verse 5. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour. That's what I mean by scales. Goliath is presented to us wearing scales. He's a reptile. He's a snake. He's defying God and he's dressed like a snake. Now that is no coincidence. The Bible uh, takes a lot of time telling us about Goliath and what he looks like. And he's dressed like a snake. And he's defying God and his people and he wields the power of death. You see, you're getting a picture here, a representative picture of the devil. And in David. We're getting a representative picture, a picture ahead of time, of Jesus. And of course, there are a number of other times, aren't there, in the Bible, where, where Jesus is portrayed as fighting a snake. When he was tempted in the wilderness. And at the cross, victory over the snake, the devil. And then right the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, right after the fall of mankind, to the temptation of the snake... The whole of history is portrayed as a search for the one who's going to crush the snake. God speaking to the snake in Genesis 3 says, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So you see, actually, David and Goliath here, we're seeing this is a picture of a cosmic battle between God and the snake the devil, the one who is defying God and his people and wielding death and God's chosen one, God's anointed one, that's David that's Jesus he is there in that battle, watch the scales this is so much more than just a kid's story and where is true power to be found well it's not in position and it's not in strength and uh, just briefly I want to say it's not in the family either Interestingly, it's not in the family. Of course not. Um, there is some power in the family. If you're a member of Donald Trump's family, for instance, you might think that uh, at the moment you've got a certain degree of power coming your way, especially if he appoints you to some position, as he has done with uh, one or two in his family. But there's no power there, really. And just in passing, though, because I want to get to the next point, you look at verses 12 to 24, and you look at verses 28 to 31. Read them later on if you're taking notes. And uh, uh, David and his family, it looks like there's some kind of internal stuff going on here, doesn't there? Uh, so, so look at verse uh, 20, um, 29. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? And you can see the kind of stresses and strains there. David has great strength. It doesn't look like it comes awfully much from his family, though. Families are important. Strong families are important. Uh, but we need to remember that real strength and power come from somewhere else. And this is the thing. This is the thing for this morning. That true power comes from weakness. Let's note, first of all, David's driving concern his driving concern is for God's name for God's reputation for God's glory God's reputation is at stake here and uh, David said that matters to me God's reputation people are rubbishing God that matters to me 
That matters enough to me to risk my life for it. God's honour, he says, matters more than mine. And there's another challenge for us. God's name is being rubbish here. That matters to me. Or do we just say, well, just quietly ignore it. You're in a situation at work, at home, at school, ever, and God's name is being rubbished. Do you just let it happen? I don't think David would. I think David would have said, actually, that matters to me. In fact, I'm sure he wouldn't. Because he put his life down on the line here for God's reputation. And as we look at 1 Samuel 17, um, it's interesting. There are far more words of David than there are about the battle with Goliath. About twice as many. And David's first recorded words in the Bible are verse 26. And just at the end of that verse, he says... Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Goliath is defying God. That's what the snake does. And David stands for God and his reputation against this evil one. Christian church, we want to stand for God. And his reputation. And where God's reputation is being rubbished and brought down, we as his people want to stand and say, actually, I'm on God's side. And we will not let that pass. I'm on God's side. And his reputation matters to me. You could actually literally use those words if you find yourself in that situation. I'm on God's side. And his reputation matters to me and here's the climax David's clear model you know all the important people here in this chapter see David as weak Eliab or Eliab however you pronounce it he says David you're a pain verse 28 Saul he says to David David you're green in verse 33 Goliath, he says to David, David, you're puny, in verse 42. And you know, true power is to be found in weakness. And this is a passage, a story, an account of God's power and God's adequacy in our weakness. You see, God gives David victory here through what everyone else sees as weakness. And here we see David, God's chosen one, anointed by God, weak, unsuited, winning a victory on behalf of God's people as he trusts in God. He's a model of Jesus, isn't he? Jesus too, weak, rejected. And yet he won the greatest victory over evil and on behalf of God's people. And now just as David's people then were the beneficiaries of his victory over evil on that day, so now also God's people are the beneficiaries of Jesus' victory over the devil as he died for us 
And as he won that victory on the cross over evil, weakness wins. And true power is to be found in weakness. It's the way God works. It's the way God has worked in history, in his son, our savior on a cross. True weakness, winning the greatest victory of all time. For us, true power is to be found in our weakness. Salvation. Going to heaven when you die. You can't do that. We can't achieve that. And so we turn to Jesus, the weak one, who died for you, but is now raised from the dead and reigns in heaven. In your weakness, he is strong for your salvation. And day by day, as we seek to live for him, you can't, you just can't do it. But with him, you can. And in your weakness, he is strong to help you live for him every day. Lily, Max, Sam, need to remember that. So live for Jesus every day. Where is truth power to be found? In your weakness. And in the weakness of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would keep reminding us that true power is to be found in weakness. Ours and in the death of our God and Saviour Jesus. For his name's sake.